summon the Scream Writers Podcast, the premier podcast welcoming both veteran and up-and-coming horror screenwriters slaying their craft. <laughs> and now your hosts. Welcome to the Scream Writers Podcast. I'm Patrick Mediate, and I am joined by my guest host for a fourth consecutive week, Miss Katie Moyer. Hello. I'm back. You're back. You're back. <laughs> well, of course you're back because today's a very special day. Before we get into all of that and how special this day is and mm-hmm. why it's so special and below people's minds, let's talk a little bit about what we've been up to. What you've been up to. We know you've got this short story you're doing with Mick Jagger and the yeah. you know all that stuff how's that going <laughs> well first of all Mick Jagger isn't actually in it right, right. Uh, but I just um, think that's all I took away from the last time you described this thing as Mick <laughs> Jagger so uh, how's it going well um I mean it's it's going okay it, it as best as can be expected you know got some people you know interested in reading it and that's pretty much where we are with it right now but um I know you got some you got some big stuff going on Patrick big stuff <sighs> I got big stuff going on mm-hmm. I have very very big stuff going on. We, as in Aaron McLean of- Not SF, Aaron Sorkin. Not Aaron Sorkin. Aaron <laughs> McLean. He's been a friend of mine since my college days at Emerson College. We both graduated together. He was doing special effects for my college zombie movies. And we were just doing our thing back then. And then recently, we both- teamed up and we said, look, like I was, I was thinking about doing something about werewolves. And he said, I know a lot about werewolves. And I ran the idea by him. He freaked out on it. Long and short of it is he came onto the project and decided to write the screenplay with me and co-write it. He does the SFX for Walking Dead now, which is really cool because going from doing them on my movies and then to Walking Dead is pretty amazing. It's exciting. His career is exciting. It's, he's doing something he's always wanted to do, but we co-wrote a screenplay together. It is called Daughters of the Moon, First Phase. Ooh. That's spooky. Spooky. And it's actually, it's a horror film, like very much a horror film. But for anyone who knows my style of writing, I like to write horror in, and this is again a cliche, but in a more elevated way that mixes and blends different genres so much so that I've been told that it, it it could be to my detriment that I'm not just sticking to horror horror but I go into like adventure thriller mystery and it's this just this whole melting pot of different genres and I think that's exciting yeah I, I'm not sure who told you that you shouldn't like mess with that I think horror is the ubiquitous genre that can be blended with pretty much anything like horror romance horror comedy horror drama and you know you can't you can't do that with many other you can you know dramedy can happen but horror still is always going to be horror and then you have the added elements that can make it elevate or that can you know be movie schlock which is just as good so well that's the cool thing about this one is that we even go there we even go into b-movie territory with some of the dialogue some of the just the feel of it i think aaron says it most closely resembles like a robocop in the sense that it's not doesn't really have a place in a, in any genre it's just okay. it is what it is that's almost even better because then you're not limiting yourself to different tropes right, right. you get to explore in different directions and you know get verhoeveny with it or coscarellian if you will yeah it's very much so 
so. And I can't wait, Katie, to send it to you because I want you to read it. And I really, really think as, as someone who's a horror aficionado, a cinema, cinephile, cinephile, yeah. you will really, really, really enjoy it. I mean, I it's the one screenplay that I've written. And again, not to toot my own horn, but I have just reread it so many times. And a lot of the screenplays I've done, I'm like, okay, I'm just sick of this because I've reread it and rewrote it a hundred times. But the more I reread this thing, just the more exciting it gets. And the more I'm like, I just want to see this thing made ASAP. But our intent of it is to make a comic book actually out of it, a graphic novel. They oh wow! Graphic novel is the more mm-hmm. that's that's a more highbrow way. Popular nomenclature. Exactly, but I want you to read it, have that in mind. But that's what we're kind of thinking is we want to go the graphic novel route because it lends itself so well to graphic novels. So this is the first phase. Then there's going to be the second phase, you know, and then so on and so forth. Yeah, I think with wanting to kind of sequelize it and make as many as you can, especially because you're so excited, graphic novel would be a great way to go, and then. Of course, getting it optioned from the graphic novel because so many things, I mean, they're making Sandman now and comic books are getting optioned all the time. Yeah, Lock exactly. And key. Yeah, exactly. And I and I kind of just want to see it as a graphic novel because I think it'd be cool. Anyway, it's going really well. We already, we finished it, finished it. So we got some great notes, great, great notes, including the best notes that exist. And I don't want to have his inbox just be overloaded by writers just coming out and asking him to read their screenplays and offering notes. But Christopher O'Brien, we met on screenwriter Twitter. He Hmm. is un-freaking-believable, and I will not, I refuse, I will not put my screenplay into a festival or anywhere or show it to anyone until he has read it and done notes on it. Oh, that's really cool. It's really cool. I mean, so he he gave, this on, he gave 20 pages of notes, and (laughs) me and Aaron were just like, floor it was just great and we implemented every single one of the notes and lo and behold it is a killer screenplay well yeah now he's never going to edit for you again he's never going to read no he 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 must like i don't know what well because you've thrown him he's going to get all the questions now people are going to be coming out i know i know i'm going to be now i'm going to be in the back of the line you're in the doghouse you're in the werewolf house i know i know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, really excited about the screenplay and um, definitely keep everyone updated through its festival run. It's going to be a really exciting one, I think, and it has a really bright future. That's exciting. Yeah, I want to I want to get closer to talking and revealing about who we have on the show today. He's on my bucket list. Really, really, really high up, like number really up there on my bucket list of horror screenwriters I always wanted to speak to and interview. Like I mentioned last week, I sent him probably like seven or eight emails throughout last year, and it was just not the right timing every time. And I was just persistent, persistent. And one day he was like, sure, you know what? This is the time. Let's do it. And I jumped up and down, and I'm excited to have him on the show. If you were to have one of your favorite horror screenwriters on the show, who would that be for you? Oh my gosh. Um, sorry, I was all prepared with like just a writer, writer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, or or writer, writer. I mean, you sure, Aaron Sorkin, if you want him to come on, I mean, sure, fine, but. Um, no, well, I mean, I think when it comes down to it, if I mean, writer, screenwriter, somebody who puts a pen to paper in any way, it's Chuck Palahniuk. Oh, good um, choice. 
And it, I mean, I've absolutely loved him forever. I, you know, I buy the expensive hardcovers as soon as they come out, everything he does. And he's on the, in the, on the corner of horror. I think he delves into the human horrors and the human psyche and Haunted is of course, one of my absolute favorites of his, which is not an easy read. But mm-hmm. it's just so visceral and thought provoking. And I think I would pass out before I even got to ask him a question, but I got hyperventilate. Yeah. <laughs> well, don't don't do that. Cause I, I've heard that you also are really, really, really into our guest today. Like you you really love him as a horror writer. You've met him, you guys have crossed paths. So I'm a little worried you're gonna have some sort of hyperventilation today. To tell you the truth. I, I think I think I've calmed myself down. I have my paper bag next to me if I need it. But um, no, he and I have uh, met previously at horror conventions. I'm sure I'm just one of the many faces that he meets. But I can say that he is one of the most just genuine and thoughtful people to the fans that I've ever met. And I'll tell you, at con- I didn't meet him at a table. I didn't meet him. He wasn't like there. He was there as a fan. And I got to talk to him as a fan. And he was there as a fan too. And that was very cool. I think we just jump right into introducing him today. And Katie, first off, because you've stayed on for this long for the podcast, you've joined us as a guest host. You've earned you've earned introducing today's guest. So I am absolutely, I'm going to actually give you the reins, have you give him the grand introduction, even ask the first question. We're very excited to welcome to the show, Mr. Mick Garris. For those of you who don't know Mick, he is a horror icon at this point. Uh, In addition to having written such classics as Hocus Pocus, The Fly 2, Critters 2, among just many, many others. He's also collaborated with the likes of Stephen King on his film Sleepwalkers. Uh, He's worked with Steven Spielberg, you know, all of the Stevens. All the Stevens. Um, Yep. Uh, Amazing stories and batteries not included. He's also the creator of Showtime series Masters of Horror and the NBC series Fear Itself. He also put together Nightmare Cinema in 2018 of the same vein as Masters of Horror. He contributes to the web series Trailers from Hell. And as of 2015, he is also a member of the Board of Advisors for the Hollywood Horror Museum. So any chance we get to talk to a horror collector, we will take it. I'll take it. You'll take it for sure. Mick Garris also hosts the horror podcast Postmortem on the Dread Network. So Mick, welcome to the Screenwriters Podcast. We're so excited to have you. Welcome. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Patrick. It's fun to be here. We so like far. to start off with the... <laughs> yeah, so far, just you just wait. You just wait. Yeah. Well, the, the first question is the easy question, and it's cliche question because our listeners are budding aspirational horror screenwriter listeners. They all want to know, you know, How did you break into the business? Well, everybody's story is entirely different. I started writing short fiction when I was 12 years old and have been doing that ever since. I'd written several screenplays before anybody even saw them, no less bought anything. My first job was answering phones for the original Star Wars, just as a receptionist for 150 bucks a week. But then I started writing press kits and working on other projects, more American graffiti, the Lucasfilm stuff. Then um, I I went to Avco Embassy and did special promotion for Scanners and the Howling and Escape from New York and the Fog. And when the head of Avco moved to Universal, he brought me over with him with The Thing and Videodrome and American Werewolf in London. So I had a perspective on how to reach the genre fans that the studios did not. So that was my value. Meanwhile, having been writing since I was 12 years old, 
eventually I was able to get my script seen by some agents and producers and the like. Nobody really responded except William Morris. I got an agent at William Morris based on some spec material I'd written. Eventually, he got a script, a spec script that had never been sold, but got it to Steven Spielberg while I was shooting the making of The Goonies up in Astoria, Oregon. And I was interviewing Steven, who had been on a, an interview show that I did on LA's late lamented pay TV channel, The Z Channel, back in 1979, 78 or 79. So I was interviewing him on the set of The Goonies on the first day of production. And he uh, asked what I was doing. You know, he said, you, you must do a lot of these. And I was hiring myself to do it just to learn how to put pieces of film together to make a narrative. The stupidest thing you can say to a Steven Spielberg was, well, I'm actually doing less of them because I'm trying to make a go of it as the screenwriter. That's normally a big turnoff, but we had gotten along doing the interview on the Z channel was very friendly and he enjoyed doing it, which he didn't usually. And he said, oh, really? Well, we're looking for writers for this new show I'm doing called Amazing Stories. And I was on food stamps at the time. My agent sent them a spec script and the coverage, which I was privileged to read later, the last three words of the coverage were hire this man. So I had made a good impression on Steven. He knew me as an interviewer. He knew me as a, a behind the scenes documentarian. And now he knew me as a screenwriter where his people inside the organization of Amblin were recommending me as a writer. So I didn't know until years later, I was the first writer hired to write an episode of Amazing Stories. They called me, asked me to come in and meet with them. They pitched me a couple of Steven's stories, hired me to write one. Three days later, I turned it in. And a day and a half after that, they asked me to do a second one. And halfway through writing that screenplay, they called and asked me if I would become the story editor. So I literally went from being on food stamps to having the most powerful filmmaker in the world ask me to write for his TV show full time. That's incredible. I mean, that's the perfect, perfect example of everything that everybody teaches you, right? One day your life can all change, right? It just yeah, takes yeah. one yes. It just takes totally. one yes. You don't necessarily write to make a fortune. You write because you love it. I started writing at 12 and I was 33 when I was hired by Spielberg. So I never made a living off of writing until I was 33 years old. And I'd been doing, I'd been writing screenplays for like 10 years, but I didn't know how to sell them. I didn't know what to do with them, but I had found a relationship with a small agency and that led to being read by a major agency, William Morris at the time, and Rick Jaffa, who later became a hugely successful screenwriter himself with his wife, Amanda Silver. He was my agent. He got my script in front of Spielberg's people, and it opened a door that hasn't closed since. Tremendous amount of luck, timing, and being able to deliver what people were looking for, and to be somebody that someone wanted to work with. And I think that's the important thing is you were given the opportunity, but you had the discipline, the skill, and you were ready to seize the day when that opportunity happened. And I think that's really important. I think a lot of screenwriters, they have one screenplay and they're like, I wrote one screenplay. I'm really proud of it. Yeah. But then you get the opportunity and then an agent's like, OK, what else do you have? OK, now what else do you have? But you're not ready to seize the opportunity. So you're truly not ready. And then that opportunity goes away. And yeah. And it's a matter of you're a screenwriter when someone else says you're a screenwriter. 
you know, and usually the approbation comes from your first paycheck. You know, someone actually pays you to write a screenplay or for a screenplay that you've written. Now, on the other side of the Spielberg thing was he asked me to write Batteries Not Included, which was originally a story he'd written for Amazing Stories and that uh, I was adapting. So I wrote it. It was like my first studio feature job for Universal, big opportunity. And I put my heart and soul into it. And it was 140 pages long when I turned it in. I didn't hear from Stephen for a week or so. And when I did, he said, you know, and this is an embarrassing story, but one I think people need to hear if they want to do this life was Mick, it took me three sittings to read this big pause. And that's not a good thing. So I took that to heart. You know, it can either slay you or you learn from it and take that as an opportunity to once again, the most powerful, successful, imaginative filmmaker in the world, giving you a second chance and telling you that it was too much. And I I taught myself never to write a block of words, a paragraph longer than five lines. Don't over describe. I spent the next few days just putting it on a diet and I turned it in, I think it was 117 pages. And then he called me and said, Universal just greenlit your script. So there's two sides of the Steven Spielberg story, both of them great, one of them a cautionary tale. It's a good thing he gave you that second chance. You never, you, you usually don't get second chances in this business. You know, so. No, not as a screenwriter. I mean, it, there are so many human chaffs out there who've been blown away <laughs> to have people replace them. And now on Batteries Not Included, you were given a story credit. Can yeah. you explain to our listeners like exactly what a story credit means versus being named as the screenwriter of the project? Well, Story credit came, fortunately, again, because of the wonderful relationship with Steven Spielberg. He wrote the initial storyline, which was very simple for the half-hour TV show. But when I took over and wrote the initial screenplay, he could easily have asked to share story credit with me. But he, as an opportunity to me, said, look, I'm giving you sole story credit. What it means is that I was the first writer. I laid down the characters and the general mise-en-scene of of the screenplay and where it was going to go. But then when they hired Matthew Robbins, who had written for Spielberg before, Steven's first feature, he was hired to be the director and he brought in Brad Bird and the two of them rewrote it. But it still maintained a lot of those elements that came out of my script. I was given story credit because a lot of the specifics were created by the other writers. And I was also told team players don't fight for credit, (laughs) which is not really a true statement. But in that case, I I was thrilled to get story credit on a movie produced by Steven Spielberg that became a big, successful Hollywood movie. What a story. I mean, it's I'm just like I mean, these these stories are just like they become instant lore because it's just ingrained with these names and these things. I mean, when you were first starting out, did you ever imagine that you would be among the elite of of Hollywood like the Spielbergs and uh, and the likes? I always felt like a phony, you know, I felt like I was getting away with something because I'm not a guy who goes to the Oscars. The only time I ever went was operating R2-D2 in 1978. Um, I mean, that in itself. I heard that story. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I'm not a guy who goes to big events and hobnobs with the elite the Hollywood elite, even though I'm a hometown boy, I was born here in LA. I never had any, any 
connection to the industry until I started working for Stephen. It's a total surprise when, first of all, anybody knows who I am or they're familiar with the work that I do. So I never feel like I'm part of that same group of people who make the movies that we all know and love. Speaking of the work uh, you do, you've had some big wins and and contributions in the horror world. I mean, uh, some of my favorites, and these have become true cult classics, Critters 2, The Fly 2. I mean, just great follow-ups to just solid films. I mean, I think the whole Critters uh, series is just so much fun. And uh, to follow up The Fly is just an exciting opportunity. But one exciting opportunity that was not particularly <laughs> well attained. I mean, The Fly is one of the best genre movies great. ever made. It's great. The Fly 2 is somewhat less than one of the best genre films ever made. But to follow up such a cool genre film, I mean, I think still there are a lot of big cult fans of The Fly 2. I personally yeah. like the film, and there are certain select individuals that love it too. So I, I think it's, you know, there's, I think there's a niche for everything. Well, but, it's hard to feel proprietary uh, yeah. over that one because after I left it, after a couple of drafts to go and direct the Timeless Classic Critters 2. Um, and Frank Darabont was the next writer on it. And then the, the Wheat brothers, Jim and Ken Wheat were the writers after that. So all of us are credited, but I get a story by because I was the first one and then first position because most of the ideas came from the script that I had contributed. As well deserved. But be because we have yet on this show, I mean, we were 28 episodes in, 28 episodes deep, 29 episodes deep. We've yet to have any horror family film writers on the show. And you just happen to have co-written um, or, or fully written, I believe maybe co-written Hocus Pocus. Um, well, I was the first I was the first writer on Hocus Pocus. Yep, so I yep. wrote I wrote the first few drafts. I've got three credits on it. Uh, one co-story author with David Kirshner, whose original idea it was, who was the producer and a really, really wonderful guy who also created the Chucky movie. Then uh, I, I'm first position screenplay co-writer and then a co-executive producer. Where did the idea come from for, for Hocus Pocus? And, and what were some of the considerations, challenges with making like a family focused horror movie? Because to a lot of kids, uh, it, it was actually scary. I mean, it actually affected their childhood as kind of a scary thing. Where the idea come from what was the balance and the challenges with making that. And was it even intended uh, by you to be a family focused horror movie to begin with? Was it supposed to be scarier? Tell us a little bit about all of that. We knew from the beginning that it was going to be called originally Disney's Halloween House. It wasn't called Hocus Pocus originally, but we knew it was going to be a Disney movie, not a touchstone movie. We knew it was for a family. And you go in knowing certain things. You want to stretch the boundaries a little bit. And I must admit that my drafts were a bit darker than the movie that resulted. Neil Cuthbert was brought in mainly to do comedy revisions and to make it more playful. But it was always playful. We knew it was for kids. And I love entry horror. You know, when I was a kid, I loved that stuff. I would have, you know, been terrified by R-rated movies that are out there now or unrated movies that are out there now if I were 12 years old. I was writing for the 12-year-old Mick. 
Well, the original idea came from a story that David Kirstner used to tell his daughters, his little girls, and then he wrote it up for the Muppet magazine at the time. And then they decided to turn it into a movie. And David produced and created an American tale. He also drew the characters for that animated movie. And so he was working for Spielberg. I was writing for Amazing Stories and working for Spielberg. So he saw my work and thought this could be a really good match. And that's what happened. But yeah, I mean, you know, when Disney's in the title, if you go too far, you're missing the entire audience. You know who the audience is and you write for that audience. You write for yourself as a member of that audience. So I knew there wasn't going to be any sex or violence, you know, blood and guts, but you can do entry horror. And, and that's kind of what it is. It's fun. It's playful but it's a scary movie. It has passed the test of time way beyond any of us imagined. You turn on Freeform any night uh, during the month of October and it's on every single night. It's like, wow, these tiny little residuals are really kind of cool. Yeah, and it's pretty much like, at this point, like the Christmas story of Halloween. Like it's, yeah. you know, it's just, they just replay it and replay it every t for 24 hours straight, which is just so exciting. There are some rumors out there that Hocus Pocus 2 is coming out. It's got a lot of buzz, obviously, because this, the original that you, you know, started this foundation of this amazing film has, you know, spurred this interest in doing this second film and everybody's like all jazzed about it but there are rumors out there that you you know everything that you made this uh, wrote this other made for tv film and bet midler didn't like it and then like you know uh then you didn't get uh, put on for the film like the actual second one now it's got jen d'angelo as the writer of the hocus pocus 2 but dispel these rumors if they are rumors and then also like Talk a little bit about, were you just not even contacted? Were you, you know, what transpired there for the second one? The rumors I had never heard until you told me about them, because I've never been attached to write or direct Hocus Pocus 2. It's been in the works forever. I wrote my drafts for the original Hocus Pocus eight years before the film was made. And my connection to it is wonderful and I love it and appreciate it and all, but it's 2021. I think they're just uh, starting to shoot like within the next week or so. I ran into Doug Jones last night and he's all excited to be back in the movie. So I'm thrilled about it, but it is 2021 and there is a choice to have female filmmakers involved, writers and directors, which I think is a great approach because this is an especially female driven story. I love that and uh, I am eager to see it, but I've never been attached to do it again. You know, I've already lived in Hocus Pocus land and I've lived there for a long time now. And I'm thrilled to see what the, the new creators are going to bring to it. And it's time that, you know, some new life is breathed into it. But I'm really glad the original actors are back. Yeah, that's that's certainly exciting. And I think everybody hopes for when you have so, so, like a weight on something as much as you have on Hocus Pocus. And it's been how many years now that all these years later, it's done right. It's, you know, uh, the sequel's done justice. And you just and it's always hard because you've got that point where it's like when you're so harped on the original, you're always going to have no matter what you did or how great it is, you're always going to remember the original and say, oh, you're gonna have those people that say, oh, it's never good enough. It's never good enough. Yeah. 
but yeah. it's something new. It's something fresh. And I'm sure there's going to be hope tons. for the best. I love it. Yeah. yeah. And hope for the best and, and keep positive yeah. about it. Very excited that Doug Jones is returning. Everyone's returning. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I, I'd love to move on and talk about one of my absolute favorite things that you brought to the lives of the horror community, which is Masters huh. of Horror. Uh-huh. Um, because it's, I mean, it's just incredible bringing these Masters of Horror. I mean, I know you had the dinners first and then all of a sudden there was a series and then Fear Itself happened and you were able to bring that same kind of inspiration and talent to Nightmare Cinema as well. So I we would love to hear about your expertise in the curation and inspiration of bringing these people into the fold, giving them an opportunity to create without the boundaries of producers um, and just tell us about the experience. Well, I mean, certainly one of the greatest experience of my experiences of my life doing the Stephen King stuff like The Stand and The Shining and, and the other things we've done together. Unbelievable opportunities and great times although the stand was the hardest job ever in the world of filmmaking. I'm an enabler. I love great filmmakers. I love the genre. And, you know, these dinners we had, they weren't about work. They weren't about, you know, bitching about the the business and where it was. But we talked about how great it would be to be able to be the inmates running the asylum and having the key to the cages. Ultimately, after a few of these dinners where it was just friends who have the same job, just like maybe shoemakers have dinners together. But in this case, we're horror filmmakers. Just being able to get together and do something on our own where you could get these filmmakers to do what they want, unfettered by commercial forces or critical forces from the studios or advertisers. Ultimately, I came up with the concept of these one-hour movies, 13 one-hour movies in the series, that were unrelated except by the fact that they were made by great acknowledged masters of the horror genre. I knew most of them. They were friends, uh, colleagues, people I'd worked with before. Some of them I'd never met, but I admired. We took it to three different places. All of them wanted to do it. The first one we went to was Anchor Bay, and there was no network involved at all. They were going to be direct to home video. First, we had to get commitments, the, the chicken and egg thing. If we get this show going, would you commit to being a part of it if you're not busy? You know, So we had Toby Hooper and John Carpenter and George Romero, although he ended up never being able to do one because of timing and Wes Craven, Larry Cohen, Stuart Gordon, all these great people, Joe Dante, John Landis, who said, yeah, if you get it going, we'll be glad to be a part of it. So in the room, Anchor Bay said, how much and when can we start? And we literally were off and running from that meeting onward. It's not my masters of horror. It's their masters of horror. You know, they're not made to my taste. They are made to the filmmaker's ability to express themselves the way they want to. About half of them brought in material of their own, either they wrote it or they have a writer that they worked with that had a story that was worth telling. Or we brought in some writers and hired them to develop scripts that they pitched to us. And some of them, like John Carpenter, we hooked him up with uh, Scott Swan and Drew McQueenie, and they wrote his two episodes. It worked out like that. And it was a huge success for Showtime, who only, they only licensed it, they paid like 10% of the cost of the production. So they didn't pay enough to be able to have any creative input. And they knew that getting these filmmakers 
for a very low cost to do what they really wanted to do and fulfill fulfill their own visions was something very special. And they could not sully the waters. They couldn't lift their leg and leave a yellow stain on the episodes that we, we were making. And it turned out great. We got great filmmakers to do some of their best work on tight budgets and tight schedules. We had to say, look, there's only this much money and only this much time. But if you can do it under those circumstances, you can do whatever the hell you want. And so we got some amazing work out of some amazing people who had been, frankly, quite frustrated with the Hollywood system. The one thing I love about Masters of Horror that that distinguishes it for me, and every time I hear Masters of Horror, because I'm a big anthology fan, is the production value, but not just the value of the production itself, but the quality of the writing and the narratives and the stories are all so good that personally I feel that it's it's just it's leaps and bounds above you know any other anthology fair out there it's it, it you can tell that each individual writer paid a lot of attention and and care even though it's a short a short story not not a feature they've really spent a lot of time and care writing these scripts making sure that they're the best they could be all around and and that's what i've always appreciated about masters of horror personally well that was the job to get the best people and allow them to do their best work and encourage them to do their best work and they really did it you see a lot of things tales from the crypt was kind of the boobs and blood show it was a lot of fun, but it wasn't necessarily people working at the height of their their talents. In this case, we got people who really gave a shit and really wanted to accomplish something to show what they could do without interference. And so Lionsgate bought the show and they sold it to NBC before the writer's strike as a strike-proof show because what they ended up doing when the strike happened, we'd had all 13 of the first drafts done. And then they hired non-union Canadian writers to do all the writing after that. So I quit the show because I'm a Guild member and the whole point of the Guild is to protect its members. And they they said to me, well, you can stay on as a producer and give notes. And I no, that's not the point. You don't get it. You know, we are in solidarity here. So they brought in people who didn't have the same passion, the same philosophy to do all the rewriting. And I didn't want to do the show at first at all because I knew it was for NBC. I knew there'd be commercials and I knew there'd be broadcast standards that we would not want to meet. But people like Stuart Gordon said, you know, look, there was Twilight Zone, there was Outer Limits, and, and these things were able to do really great work under these circumstances. And so I agreed to do it. And then when the pending strike happened and all of those things happened, I could not in good conscience stay on. And so I basically saw my baby kidnapped and raped. Yeah, it's outside of the spirit of the show and, and yeah. what the circumstances that you started it on. So that makes sense that you would have to walk away at that point. Yeah, that, the hardest decision of my professional life. But you got to revive it with Nightmare Cinema recently, yeah. Yeah, which was which, very fun and very international. I loved that you were able to bring new voices to it. Well, the original intent was to follow up Masters of Horror with an international nightmare cinema where we would shoot each one in a different country with a filmmaker from that country. Our vision was a little bigger than everybody else's. We could have done it financially. It would have been just fine as a series. 
but we couldn't get that going. It was too ambitious for most people's imaginations. Then it was an idea of doing it as an umbrella title for a series of feature films that would go, you know, either Netflix or theatrical or whatever. And finally, we ended up finding a home and doing it as a feature film that was five stories within. And that movie is the lowest budget I've ever worked under. You know, it cost a little bit less than the pattern episode of Masters of Horror 15 years earlier. Wow. You know, it's incredible. But, but we got people from Cuba, from Japan, from uh, the UK, and then Joe Dante and I were the two token Americans, but we shot the whole thing in LA. And we did it at such a low budget that we were able to qualify for low budget fees for SAG and DGA and WGA and all of those things and made something we're really proud of. And there's some work afoot to try and do a Nightmare Cinema 2 and maybe launch a series from that. But I'm a huge anthology fan, having worked on Amazing Stories and done a Tales from the Crypt and Freddy's Nightmares. And Clive Barker and I are now in negotiations for a, an all original series with 10 original stories that he's written. And I just passed out. Yeah, um, I think we both we both like hit the floor for a second there. Yeah, this is new. It's it's I haven't not caught that episode of Postmortem yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, we talk about it when Clive is on Postmortem. In collaborating with other creators, uh, you mentioned this obviously before, and most people know this that that know you and your career. You have collaborated quite a bit with Stephen King, including Sleepwalkers and many other things. I'm wondering what is it like to collaborate with King, who's a horror novelist as you being a screenwriter, what's your usual process with Stephen King to bring his novel, oftentimes novels that have, have become part of pop culture, into screen-worthy form? There's one big secret that gave me a, a leg up, is that Sleepwalkers was not based on a book. It was an original screenplay he wrote. He wrote the adaptations for The Stand and The Shining, and desperation himself. So I may have tinkered with them a little bit, but only because of production issues and ideas. Sleepwalkers, the studio had some notes and I made some suggestions and the scene in the mirror with mother and son having sex and being revealed as their cat images. That was something I added to the mix just to explain a little more how mother was fed the virgin essence of the victims. But King is a terrific screenwriter who didn't always respect the screenwriting form as much as he did the novel form. And when we were working on The Stand, he said that was the first time he really learned to appreciate the value of the writing is every bit as important in a screenplay because it's an adaptation of his biggest ever book that it deserved as much respect as his fiction did. And then the Shining screenplay was one of the best I'd ever read. You know, The Stand was great as well, but it was 460 pages long. So I was merely a director and contributing from that end of things. But then with something like Riding the Bullet, it was a short story that resonated with me. And I asked him if I could give him a dollar and and take a crack at turning it into a movie. That ended up being something where I wrote the screenplay and our least successful financial <laughs> uh, collaboration ever, but the one that is most closely expressing something personal to me. But the experience with 
working with Stephen King, I brought in a writer named Matt Vane to do the uh, Bag of Bones adaptation. It's so funny because I worked with a Matt Vane. Uh, he was actually a teacher of mine at the New York Film Academy out in Los Angeles. And it's such a unique name that I wonder if that Matt Vane ended up, because he was such a big horror fan, this is the same Matt Vane. I'm, I'm just, it's you know. It's got to be V-E-N-N-E. Yeah, I think it could have been. I mean, I was in the Academy maybe in 2002, like back in the day. And well, he was well, my teacher before. out there. That's yeah. before we did Bag of Bones, which yeah. was 2011. I would be surprised if it wasn't. That That's pretty cool. He's a great guy and a really good writer, and I haven't seen him in ages, but we worked very closely together. He did the adaptation. I did some revisions here and there, but that was the first one of the Stephen King adaptations, one of the few, well, writing the bullet was, but one of the few where King did not write the screenplay. And Desperation King had written the feature and then I turned it into the teleplay. My mind is a little bit blown because I've always been a, a, a diehard Stephen King fan um, and I've read his novels since I was probably like in fifth grade, which is very young to be reading King. But, yeah. um, you know, like the first book I read was It and I kind of lived it through with those kids and they were like the same age, which made it even scarier. But I never oh. until now knew how much of a screenwriter King was. I think a lot of others would share that sentiment. I mean, I've just always visualized in my head that he had the book and then, you know, Hollywood came knocking at his door and then he paired, they paired him with a screenwriter and then he, you know, they adapted it for him. But I think it's so cool to know that he is actually a, a pretty prolific screenwriter as well. He's wonderful. If you can get a, get your hands on a copy of The Stand or The Shining Screenplays, you will see textbook screenwriting. He wrote a draft of The Shining for Kubrick, who maybe never even looked at it. You know, it's, it's rather well known that King is not a fan of the Kubrick film because it kind of gutted the emotional content that was at that time his most personal book. You, like, again, writer turned screenwriter, but now recently you did these, the evil, these evil things we do. That was last year. Yeah. That's a collection of your short stories. Yeah. And I know I've heard you say in the past that you don't outline, you just write and kind of see where things take you. So I wanted to hear when a little I'm bit not more writing about... for when I'm not writing on a sign. Oh, see, we were just talking about that. How like we have to outline if we're like, yeah, it's on, a must yeah, for me. A like I, I feel like I need to outline everything. It's like the, the, mm -hmm. the structure bones of when, when I put it. So when I, when yeah, Katie was talking to me about that, I was like, Hmm, interesting. For an assignment, you're required to do all these steps. You do a treatment, you do a beat sheet, you, you, you let the studio know everything that's going to happen. Then you go ahead and write the script and throw it out. You know? <laughs> um, but for me, when I'm writing spec, which is most of my writing and fiction, I have a general idea of where it's going, but I never know the ending. And somehow the little guy who lives in the back of my brain, he figures it out. Intuition is one of a writer's best friends, but you have to allow that intuition. For me, to force it into an outline beforehand kind of locks you in some ways. You can certainly unlock it while you're doing it, but there are so many great ideas that come up during the course of the writing. And I sit down on page one, I don't write a scene, then write another scene from somewhere else, write another scene. I start at page one and go to page 110 or whatever it is without stopping. Then I've got a draft. Then I go back and work on whatever I think it needs to have. But I, I love the freedom of spec writing. That said, I've got a lot of scripts I've never sold. <laughs>
another question I had about like when you're writing the stories versus the screenplays is when you're writing spec prose kind of stuff, when do you know an idea is screen worthy? And like, do you make that transition right then? Do you finish it and then adapt it? What's that process? Well, I usually am writing fiction because I'm not writing a movie. Fiction is so much more internal than a film is. So much of it is thoughts of the characters rather than motion and action. A movie, by its very definition, moves. And fiction can be more contemplative. But you don't have to think about budget. You don't have to think about casting or embarrassing an actor or uh, anything but the ideas. Hopefully, if you have a good command of the language, and a command of the language that has a personality, which only comes through the through practice and the development of work. You know, I haven't tried to create a literary, literary personality, but I think you can read my work in fiction and tell that it was my voice. You know, a, a voice develops itself over the course of the years. Writing for the fun of the words on the page is something you can do without thinking about schedules and budgets and special effects and test screenings and likable characters and all those rules that are imposed on you. They go away when you're writing fiction. That said, I'm not a best-selling author, but I've got books that that I'm proud of. You know, I've I've made movies and television that range from hugely successful to a blip on the radar that no one's noticed. But all you can do is the best work you can do and let the other people do their jobs. You said you have a bunch of screenplays that didn't get sold. And I think there's this misconception with with up and coming screenwriters, and this is really important, that you know someone as yourself would like sell everything, right? You just make it, they're like, okay, we'll give Mick the chance, we'll make it, go for it. You, we, we trust you, your name's Mick Garris, go for it. How many scripts have gone, do you think have gone unsold? Just to put it in perspective, for you know a lot of writers that listen to the show that may have that misconception there have been some that have been sold but never made like things that I, I adapted the talisman to turn into a four-hour miniseries way back when and it's one of my favorite things i've ever written but it's never been sold but as far as my spec stuff goes there's probably 10 or 12 of them out there including Uncle Willie, which is the script that got me hired for Amazing Stories. And another one I wrote shortly after that called Jimmy Miracle, which was maybe my favorite story I ever came up with. And it's a period piece. And just this year, I went back to it and completely rewrote it from a, a new perspective. And I got it optioned right away. And that's something that doesn't happen that often. You know, usually I'll write something on spec and whether it sells or not, it makes me happy. You know, I'm creating at this point in my career, I don't need to sell them, but it's nice if I can. And uh, keeping going in my gray years is something that's important to me because it's part of who I am. What I do is who I am. Yeah, and a screenplay that you've written and created and brought into this world and birthed is never dead. Um, it's a, that's that's the perfect example of that, you know, you going back and revisiting something and it's always 30 there. 30 years later, yeah. Yeah, 30 years later. And, but it's also a reason that I write fiction because the frustrations of the rules imposed by screenwriting and the world of production just doesn't exist when you sit down and, and write to be read rather than to be seen. Very well put. I know postmortem, it was in kind of a production, like wasn't, didn't have a network for a while. And then it landed on the dread network. Is that right? And that's where people can find you. Well, it started as a TV show on Fearnet, 
like mm -hmm. 10 years ago. And we oh, did wow. a series of 10 of them. We did Wes Craven and Robert England and Rick Baker and, and John Carpenter and Toby Hooper and all of these people. And the videos, including my old Z channel interviews that I recorded on Betamax back when they were aired in the early, late 70s, Solid. early 80s. <laughs> They are all on uh, mickgarrisinterviews.com and you can watch them. The, but the original Fearnet TV show was where Postmortem came from, but it was years later. Podcast One is the biggest podcaster in the world. They came to me and asked me if I had an idea for a podcast. And I was like, well, I never thought of it. But um, this is our fifth year, but we started out on podcast one, then we did it with Fangoria, and then they had a, a bit of a meltdown during a scandal period, and all of the podcasters decided to leave Fangoria. We were with Blumhouse for a while, which... Eh, none of the podcasts really got the respect that they deserve, but we've been with Dread this year and they've been great, very supportive. But, you know, it's our fifth year. We've done over a hundred interviews. We've done Stephen King. We've done Clive Barker. We've done John Carpenter. We've done Walter Hill. We've done Whoopi Goldberg. We've done Patton Oswalt. I mean, anybody who we find interesting, who is even tangentially involved in the, the genre. And being a filmmaker, interviewing filmmakers, we get to talk about things that I've never heard any of them talk publicly about before. As you know, nobody does a podcast to get rich, but uh, it's something where I get to learn from people, some of whom I know, some I don't, but it's an educational process for me in my gray years, still being able to be a sponge to other creative people. Yeah, and that's why we started Screenwriters Podcast as well, because obviously nobody's getting rich off Screenwriters Podcast, but we started it, uh, A, to showcase up-and-coming horror screenwriters of all types, and to hear from veteran horror screenwriters like yourself to learn from the best. So it's been a joy to have you on the show and that you agreed to come on today. I know we were sort of hounding you for a little bit and couldn't make it work yeah. for season one, but we're so excited that you were able to make it on today. Thanks so thank for being you. dogged in your pursuit. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, and dogged. Uh, <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> we, we we like to ask uh, our guests one last question to end off every show. And that question is, uh, Mick, what scares you? You know, it's not monsters. It's not skeletons. It's not zombies. It's not vampires. But it's the health and safety of the people who I love. It's not a very fun answer, but I've lost a lot of people. I've lost two brothers and a sister. I've lost friends. And you know, uh, one of my brothers was one of the early uh, AIDS death. And to see somebody wither and die, that is fear personified. You know, that's when it's up close and personal. That's why I think humanity and horror is the most effective way to tell a story. Something that is grounded in the real world. You know, that's what riding the bullet is all about. Horror seems glamorous and fun until you experience it firsthand. Thank you, Mick, for coming on the show. It's been a real joy. Hopefully, we can have you back at some point in the in the future to catch up with you, but it's been really great. So thank you again. Thanks a lot for having me. It's been a real pleasure. So Katie, how do we 
follow up what just happened there. Where do we go? There from is here? no follow up. The I only think we've just yeah. put it, we've just wrote ourselves into a corner. We here. we put the nails in the coffin, if we you will. Have you know how when they say nobody puts baby in the corner? Well, we're in the corner. What do we oh do? Oh my gosh! Well, who who's our next guest? Because we just crescendoed here. Is there a way we can follow us up? Like, can I even keep you here? I mean, after what we've just gone through here, are you coming back next week or what? What's happening here, Katie? No, I'm done. I think. That this you mentioned his name before and now I'm done. I'm Are we just ending no, the seat? Should we just end season two here? Like, <laughs> no, because on? I love talking to writers and this is just I mean, his story is an amazing story to, you know, and he, and he wrote amazing on, stories. Exactly. So <laughs> look at that. But I think the experience, everyone's different. I think I hit he it is very magical. The idea that, uh, you know, he's interviewing Steven Spielberg and the guy actually says, because I feel like if I were in that scenario and I and I mentioned like hey like if i said to mick right now hey i'm a writer and i have this screenplay and that i'm working with and stuff and he's like yeah great i'd love to read it like i don't think that happens mm. like to, to most people and Ooh, so yeah. it's it could uh happen, though. it, could, it happen. could happen i know so we still need the new perspectives we still need all the different avenues all the different opportunities that people have to break into this weird and wild industry and learn, learn from those experiences. Don't yeah. just message Mick Garris out of the blue because he will respond because he's that nice. But we're not going to do what you did to your <laughs> at the beginning of the show. Yeah, it's <laughs> we're not, not going to bombard him. With... We won't do that. And I and I was very nice about it. You know, I, I emailed, I spaced the emails out just just right. You know, I marked the calendar. So it wasn't like an abusive kind of emailing. <laughs> it was it was it was tactful. But yes. you said this about up and comers, too. I think that what's keeping everyone here is getting back to the roots of why we started the podcast in interviewing people who are moving up, right? Mick is at the top of his game, right? Mm -hmm. But it's so important to explore for a majority of the rest of the season, new writers, up and coming voices, people who are have been writing amazing things of all backgrounds, of all creeds, you know, just getting them on here to talk to them about their experiences, what they're going through, you know, be a little bit of a sounding ground for them. So I can't wait. We have some really, really cool guests lined up for the remainder of this season. And Katie, I would love for you to join as much as you can for the for the rest of his episodes until you truly break up with the show. I, I am very happy to stay on. This is just as informative and entertaining to me on this side of the microphone as it would be to be on the side, the other side of the earphones. So, you know, as Mick said, it's about knowing your craft, becoming an expert at it. And um, that's that's what listening and being a part of this is about. So I am happy to hang out. Hang Great. in there. Great. I'm happy hang, to hang in there hang like in the there cat. Like, like the cat, exactly. <laughs> Next week, we have a fabulous guest. Of course, we have been searching high and low for fresh new voices to have come on the show. We actually did a tweet about it a few weeks ago, and we got bombarded by so many individuals that were like, I write horror screenplays, and I want to come on, and we are so happy to support you to give you a voice on Screenwriters Podcast. So next week, we will see you guys again. Until then, hit us up on Twitter at ScreenwritersPC, on Instagram at Screenwriters Podcast. We're also on Facebook. We have a page. You can like it. Go on Apple Podcasts. Go on Spotify. Wherever you get your podcasts, give us five stars. Subscribe to us so you can get up-to-date information. Be the first to get that episode once it comes online. And 
yeah, screenwriterspodcast.com. You can listen to all of our past episodes and enjoy because there's lots to enjoy. There's lots there. And Katie, I will see you next week. And until next week, for all of you out there, keep writing. And stay scared.